and we are recording in progress recording with dr paul alexander who has uh been on here two times before and i think it's been about 500 episodes since you've been on um this is a uh, this is the fourth episode I've done today. And one pattern I have noticed is if I do more than three episodes, my cheeks start to get very red. I don't know why. It always happens, though. If I do three episodes, my cheeks get very red. So I don't know why that's happening. I don't really care. It's not important to this podcast. Dr. Alexander, please introduce yourself to all the new listeners. <clears throat> Tommy, once again, first of all, you can always call me Paul. Um, second of all, you know, I've watched you over the last couple of years and how you've evolved and I think your show is, uh, is remarkable in the sense that um, you're always well prepared so I know you do your homework you're very on top of COVID issues, the politics and um, many people who started shows and stuff it fell, they, they, didn't, they couldn't continue so I think it's a testament to you and um, your hard work and um, I'm very honoured and privileged to be here again Thank so you, quickly, um, my background training is uh, I did graduate school at, in, in, United, in Canada at the University of Toronto uh, in, in epidemiology. Then I went on, I did a short uh, a program certificate at Johns Hopkins in bioterrorism. From there, I went to Oxford and did graduate research in clinical epi. And after that, um, I was thinking about a doctorate in um, biological warfare at Johns Hopkins, and I was talking, and actually, Dr. Donald Henderson, who eradicated smallpox, he, I met him at Johns Hopkins, and he agreed to supervise, but I also got accepted to the doctorate program at McMaster in Canada in evidence-based medicine, so I did my doctorate, and there was funding. <clears throat> I was on a scholarship there, so uh, that was key for me. So I did my uh, doctorate at, in evidence-based medicine and uh, my postdoc. Germane to this discussion, because we're in a COVID world still, <clears throat> is that um, around, um, so from 2017 to 2019, I worked for the Infectious Diseases of Society of America, IDSA, which is the main society or agency globally for infectious diseases doctors. And um, my job was to train them in uh, how to develop clinical practice guidelines for infectious diseases. So how they would treat patients, surgeons, doctors. That's one. <clears throat> then around mid-2019, was finishing up that job. So I'm just talking about what is due mean to here. Um, in 2008, 2009, if I backed it up a little bit, I worked for the WHO in, in Europe as a regional epidemiologist for Europe. Um, overseeing countries for the, for the work that I was doing, uh, Russia, Poland, Ukraine, Turkey. So now fast forward back again to uh, IDSA. Around mid of 2019, the World Health Organization and Pan American Health in Washington asked me to, um, to help them develop um, a program for low and middle income countries globally on how to conduct basic research epidemiology, how to run statistical analyses and stuff. So to train these countries on their respective uh, public health officials. <clears throat> While I was doing that, COVID emerged. So now we're in COVID. So 
around the beginning of January. You know, we were getting these reports of something happening in China, um, something happening in Italy. We are seeing all of these images of the fallen down man in China. We've seen these images of these people in Italy on the sidewalks outside of these hospitals. So everybody was scared, everybody in, in the world. And um, WHO at that point, because this thing was happening, asked me, <clears throat> because of my work in evidence-based medicine, and they wanted to understand the situation, um, if I could transition my role with them to be a COVID advisor. At, at that point, it wasn't called COVID yet. It was still, I think, the name of the, the condition was the viruses. 2019 and coronavirus mm -hmm. or something like that. So um, my job was to take all of the information from China, Italy, wherever in the world, this was in January of 2020, and try to inform the directors and the director general from an evidence-based medicine point of view. And that's the messaging you started to get from WHO in 2019. Actually, it was coming from myself and my unit Actually, the unit was me and my director. So I, I was very heavily worked in COVID when most people would because, and a lot of it we just didn't know and we were figuring out things for the first time. Whilst managing in that role at WHO, um, I got a, a, a reach out from the Trump administration around middle April, beginning of May, asking me to come to Washington to work at Health and Human Services as a senior pandemic advisor. They knew of the work I was doing at WHO. Papers I had written, people had read and said, you know, it got to the Oval Office, to the White House. People know what you're doing. And um, <clears throat> we want you to function in a role, reporting to my boss, Mr. Caputo. In between Health and Human Services, so that's Alex Cesar and the White House. So my job really was to help my bosses make sense of what the task force was doing and saying in, in understandable terms so that they could follow up with the necessary policies, etc. So I did work with the members of the task force. So Redfield, Han, Girard. Dr. Girard, I really appreciate you, smart guy. So that was what I was doing. And um, in October of 2020, I left the Trump administration, and um, since then, <clears throat> I've been consulting with different groups globally. One of the key groups is a COVID-19 group that was set up in the United States by Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Harvey Rich. They set this group up initially three years ago and asked me to join. So as I left the Trump administration, I joined with them. It was McCullough, Rich, myself, Dr. Joe Ladapo, uh, even Dr. Simon Gold, a set of us, and we started this COVID-19 um, warrior group then, a pushback on the narrative. And um, at that point, I was hammering on, against the lockdowns and school closures. So we were writing a lot, publishing a lot, and that's where people began to craft and, and come up with the names about us as disinformation people that we were spreading rumors and lies and conspiracy theories. We were really writing. I did a, most of the writing and we published a lot then. <clears throat> most of the scientific journals would not take 
anything we did on COVID. So we were publishing as op-eds in uh, American Institute of Economic Research, um, Trial Site News, etc. at that point. And they really gave us a voice. And um, I, I appeared, I was appearing, I became one of the medicine cabinet members with um, Fox News. So it was me, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Reich, Dr. Raman Osqui, Dr. Steve Smith. And we would be rotated on Fox every night to come and talk about the lockdowns, uh, early treatment. And that's the key. I'm very, very involved. Well, I was very involved, still am, with Dr. Zelenko, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Reich, in, in forming that early treatment protocol. That early treatment protocol, we wrote that protocol. I was very honored that Dr. McCullough asked me to join with them to develop it and write, and we got it published. And that's the early treatment protocol with antivirals, corticosteroids, antiplatelet drugs that people have been using thus far. So we're still in the battle, we're still in the fight. I wanted to introduce today by, by saying today what I think, because so much, so, so, so many things have come to light in the last two to three years, right? And, and our, our thinking must evolve. <clears throat> and I want to say today, my best thinking, taking even my biological warfare training at Johns Hopkins to the table. If I took everything to the table, this is what I think happened, why we are here. I think that there was a paper written in 2015 by the lead author, surname was Mina Cherry, M-E-N-A-C-H-E-R-Y. And one of the co-authors was Ralph Barrick from University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. In that, in that 2015 paper, to me, that paper, there was a lot of stuff going on before, especially after SARS-1 in 2003. But that paper was seminal because in that 2015 paper, they described for the first time clearly that they had taken the, um, the spike protein from horseshoe bat and stitched it together with the backbone from a mouse. And they created a chimeric virus for the first time, a chimeric coronavirus that they described that had pathological consequences to human beings because they showed that it could replicate effectively, efficiently in the upper areas, human epithelial cells. So that was a big problem because they humanized the mice that they experimented on. So humanized mice is, you know, the respiratory system, et cetera, mirrors that closely to human beings. Ideally, you want to run these studies in primates, but if this is the model you're using, and they showed that these, it, it could be transmitted effectively, the upper airways, and they tested vaccines and monoclonal antibodies on that chimera. And it, it hadn't, it, it was ineffective, it failed. So it means that they, they said, we've created something that nothing works on, is very dangerous, is pathological, and it has pandemic potential. Well, I mean, and it was funded by the NIH, the United States government. That was the main funder, Fauci and they. So 
if we ever thought about the U.S. being involved in funding the research that came out of, of the Wuhan lab or whatever, there was also a part of that research involved University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. I think it's very important. Why I'm saying that is, I think in time we might get to find out that whilst we know it was made in a lab, that's for sure because of the, the information that's in the virus itself, the signatures that tells us this was manipulated. This was, this was, this was developed this was not from natural evolution. It didn't jump from an animal to a human. This, this particular aspect, this was dealt with in a lab. The key is, it, has, it came from a lab. The question is, which lab? So when they say, oh, yes, well, they, now they're saying this came from a lab. Notice they're not telling you which lab. They're letting you feel it's from China. But there is a potential, Tommy, that it came, that it might have actually been released on U.S. soil in North Carolina, and it, yes, it's a it's it's a it's a very troubling thing that we may get to learn. We we just speculating still that the what we've been dealt with actually had very strong origin in the United States and particular individuals, officials, agencies, etc. I believe then. I believe. I'm I'm just trying to make sense of it. Tommy, that um, something got out after that research by Mina Cherry and they, when I say got out, I think it was released. I am not using the term intentional today. We may get to find out it was an intentional release. So let's speculate from, if it was intentional, you talk about an act of war. Yeah. But let's just, play right now and say it was accidentally released. I'm saying it was accidentally released after they completed those experiments, somewhere after. And um, I believe that um, in that accidental release, it got loose. And I believe it was circulating. When it emerged in February of 2020, let's say we started to detect cases and whatever, some people even say December 2019 in China. I am saying, from what we are seeing in day, today, this was circulating for a couple of years before, the, before then. And some of my colleagues are saying, you know, there's a potential fall that we could even, we could see that now. I said, I'm saying, they have to prove to me today that it was not circulating. I'm trying to say that this pathogen this influenza-like illness that caused a, a type of acute respiratory distress, pneumonia-type symptoms, was circulating a couple of years even before 2020 February. So then people will say, well, Paul, what, 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 what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say that when we detected it in February and March of 2020, with the RT-PCR process, because that's not really a test. That's just a process to amplify DNA. That's a flawed detection tool, because anything over 24 cycles is viral dust, viral fragments, non-infectious, non-culturable virus. So we were cycling at 40 and 45. Everybody was going to be positive. And that's, we shut this society down and the world 
with an over-cycle, over-sensitive test. That's something that must be made clear. The PCR test is one of the issues that doomed the pandemic response and was used to really spook and traumatize somebody like President Trump and the world because everybody was, was positive. Now, back to what I'm saying. I am saying that it was always circulating benign, low consequence. We detected it officially in February, March of 2020 with the PCR test. We detected something that was always circulating. And the players involved knew that. They knew this pathogen, this influenza-like illness was always circulating. In my opinion today, certain parties decided to use this virus that they knew was circulating to create a pandemic, a crisis beyond what it was. And I will go through the two years for you and show you what I mean. So much so to impact the presidential election in November and topple President Trump. And if you tell me, are you crazy? I say, but he's not president, right? They did topple him. Yeah. That's the point. And they used the mail-in ballots, all of this madness. But my point is, and if you say, but Paul, that, that's a fascinating thing that you're saying, interesting. Well, I'm trying to say that, that we detected something in February, March that was always there at a low level. You say, but what do you mean by that? Well, as I, I'm trying to say that this was whatever these people created in the lab, they got loose did have, did operate like an influenza-like illness, just like the common cold or the flu or other coronaviruses. So let's say this is a coronavirus, as they say it is. That's an influenza-like illness, like the flu, like the common cold, causes respiratory symptoms. Pathological, problematic for people 85 and over or so with underlying medical conditions. So it will not be behaving unlike it should. If this is a respiratory illness, it will always be a challenge for elderly people, especially if you have underlying medical conditions. So it operated like how it should. So I'm saying that over the last years, a few years, a period of time, before we detected it with the PCR test in February, March 2020, it was circulating and it was killing here and there our elderly, but not that if you looked at the observed deaths versus expected deaths to see if there was any excess mortality, it will not be appreciably different because it was mild. I said so earlier, what they created was a mild pathogen that got loose. It was not lethal at that point. It was mild and we had normally, normally, if there's a new condition that hits a society or a city, the CDC, when it sends out its outbreak team, will come, do an outbreak investigation, and then they would list what, a, to the, they, they have to come up with a case definition. The, the, the epidemiological investigators that come to the scene leads with a case definition. They have to, at the end of the investigation, define um, officially, what makes a case? Why? Because as part of the investigation, and this is how it's done, 
they have to then, in the olden days, fax every doctor, every hospital, every clinic, this case definition of this issue. Meaning, from then on, if somebody presents to you in emergency ward, in your, in your office, in the doctor's office, with these constellation of symptoms, and the, the case definition would be, it must include these six, but it, it, it includes these six symptoms, fever, rash, headache, whatever, six of them. I'm giving you an example. For it to be an official case, four must be present. That's how it, it happens. And they, and they stated, so if this person has four of these six, as an example, it's a case of this new illness we have identified or a case of an existing illness we have identified. I am saying that because the cases and the whatever, the deaths mirrored cold and influenza and coronavirus of the past, that there, and there was no case definition. So nobody was looking for this coronavirus, no one, no hospital, no doctor. It escaped detection and it was captured under normal colds or flu deaths. So people were succumbing to it, not at an appreciable level that doctors in ER say, oh, all of a sudden we have a bunch of new deaths, et cetera, to, to, to spark their intrigue to investigate further. It was just being ruled as influenza-like death, influenza-like illness. Granny's 85. She's sick. She's in nursing home. She's expected to die. I'm speaking to you how it is because we lose elderly people every day from common cold or the flu who are 80, 85, and they're, and they're sick to begin with. Their immune systems have become sluggish and weak due to what we call immunosenescence, which is a weakening of the immune system, a declining with age. And that's how it is. So I'm saying that come January, February, March, this thing is operating normally. People who are dying, it, it, it was released, I'm saying accidentally. It might be that I get to find out is, is deliberate, but let's go with accidental for now. And here and there, people who have died, people got it, thought it was the cold, thought it was the flu, or I got a bad flu boy. Nobody knew this was coronavirus because nobody was checking fit and there was no case definition. When powers of being, this is where the nefariousness and the darkness comes in. I'm trying to say that there are a lot of dark malfeasant players was involved, but certain people jumped on too. You know, like the Democrats had the saying, Rahm Emanuel in the past, do not ever let a crisis go to waste. Right. So they decided, you know what? We could take out Trump with this. Because we could use this to get mail-in ballots. We could use this to punish him. And which is what they did. Because what they, they, they told me while I was in Washington, which I will, I will say it soon. But I'm, I'm moving along a line for you. Because then people will say, oh, Paul, we kind of accept what you're saying. But we have a little concern with your theory. Because around May or so, we see like a spike in deaths. If you look at the graphs, the epic curves, in all the states, principally, especially the blue states, we see there's a dramatic spike and then it flattens right? and, and then other spike, other, other peaks. What happened there, Paul, in May, June or so? Well, I could explain that. 
And their experience is this. If you took elderly people, remember places like in New York, in Elm Hospital, Elmwood Hospital, whatever you call it, they were taking elderly people who were in the hospital for different reasons and shipping them out to nursing homes so that they could make all the beds available for COVID. That was traumatizing people, elderly. If you're an old person and all of a sudden you're in your hospital and all of a sudden they dislocate you and send you to a nursing home or assisted living place that you don't even know anyone and you can't even see anybody, that's number one. So I'm, I'm trying to explain to you that kills elderly people, I know from my own family, that, that kills an elderly person. That is so traumatic. Number two, you had people who needed medical help in the normal hospital setting, could not, because remember hospitals were all closed. Everything was turned to elective surgery. Nobody with cardiovascular illness, cancers even, and diabetes who needed care, especially heart diseases, etc. Nobody was calling the hospital, you were scared you got COVID. And if you turned up to the hospital, they wouldn't treat you because this is only for COVID. That's what we did. We shut it out to everyone. So ambulance wouldn't even come to pick you up. So we had people who were sick from normal chronic illnesses, but serious sick. And they began to die because they couldn't get care. Moreover, we had granny and grandpa in the old age home who we began around April, May, June, right away, that as they even have a sniffle, we shot them quickly to the emergency room. And what did we do to them in the emergency room, Tommy? First, we gave them a PCR test that we spoke about earlier, over cycle. So for sure, granny, gonna be, uh, granny has COVID. Okay, good. Once you touch the emergency room doors and elderly, our analysis shows us that your 28-day mortality rate, in 28 days, the chance of you dying escalates 40%. Just from touching the door, from what you're going to deal with in that emergency room. So, granny is at risk right away, just coming to the emergency room door. You just say that granny is positive when we know we did analysis to show that 95% of those positives were false positives. And then... You suck granny into that black hole, that COVID protocol black hole, we call it. What do you mean? Immediately, they take granny and boom, in the back room, behind a little glass kind of thing, no doctor would even touch granny from then on for weeks and months. No, no nurse, nothing. Family couldn't see granny. All you get is granny now is in COVID, granny's in the back there, that's it. Nobody could have visited granny. Granny, all of a sudden, 85, can't see no family. No, she knows not. Isolated. Isolation is one of the greatest killers of elderly people. You take granny, you put in that cold room in the back there of the hospital. Isolate her behind a glass window. She only seen if a nurse coming to touch her, not even touch her, to, to put something on the line. Nurse have on. 12 masks, shields, like a space alien. She can't even only see, she only seen eyes, right? Nobody changing granny. We have evidence where, we have videos where you go to these, you went to these elderly people in this, you see them covered up nicely. But then if you go, people did undercover and you pull back the thing, you see 
grinding feces and maggots. Nobody was even changing her. That's what we did, our elderly. That's what we did. And while she's in the black hole, granny and grandpa, and you can't call and she can't call you, she's beginning to die. Why? Because she's becoming malnourished, dehydrated. That, that's what killed many of our elderly, the malnourishment. People, yes, they, nobody was feeding them. An 85-year-old, they don't eat normally. They will die. Then we sedated them with midazolam and diamorphine. Those two drugs were responsible for most of the deaths of our elderly. Midazolam is like a paralytic. It's supposed to be like an anxiety to calm them down. But you use that for surgery. It's part of anesthesia. You put granny under with midazolam and, and, and morphine. Granny comatose. Can't move. Okay? So that's what you did to them. You did all our elderly. Most of the people in the British hospitals in Canada and in America, we sedated them with midazolam. It's the most devastating thing we did. Those two. That's why we need to investigate these beasts for what they did our elderly. When you was finished, whilst you have granny sedated, malnourished, dehydrated, and granny is dying. Make no mistake. Granny not living there. But all these people in the hospitals and the CEOs making money. Hospitals getting incentivized for this. Granny is a COVID protocol, a COVID patient. Then you start pumping granny with remdesivir. Remdesivir, which we knew, we told them, we wrote, I wrote, McCullough wrote, Rich wrote. We've been hammering Dr. Oscree. We hammered them. Dr. Brian Artis, do not give them remdesivir. Remdesivir is kidney and liver toxic. Remdesivir is a failed Ebola drug. The animals die. Failed. Remdesivir, remdesivir is like Tamiflu. We sell Tamiflu that we use for um, the, uh, the pandemic from 2009. Tamiflu was a drug in search of a disease. They had it and it failed. And they didn't know what to do with it. Along came the 2009 pandemic and they say, well, okay, Tamiflu now for that. That's remdesivir. Remdesivir was a failed Ebola drug. They were going to junk it, dump it, billions ways gone. They decided it's COVID. They were giving our elderly remdesivir that was destroying their kidneys and their liver. Again, see, every time I say something, I tell you, we need to investigate and punish these people, Tommy. We can't let them loose. We can't let these doctors and these CEOs of these hospitals and CDC and NIH officials get away with this. And when they were done that, and granny's almost dead, then they intubated her and they put on the ventilator. And none of these beasts knew how to operate the ventilator. None of the doctors, none of the nurses, none of the technicians. What happened? By that time, granny lungs trauma because they have do not resuscitate orders also. So if granny flatline, don't even resuscitate granny, number one. Number two, they got orders, do not administer antibiotics. Granny has pneumonia by this time, bacterial pneumonia. She needs antibiotics, which would have saved her life. No, 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 no. Hospitals and doctors were told no antibiotics. So granny not even getting what she needed and her lungs being destroyed. And you now put on a ventilator with trauma, massively infected lungs. 
the ventilator was blowing big holes in the lungs because at the alveoli level, deep down in the lung, where the gas exchange takes place, the alveoli, the walls, the membrane, is like, they're so thin because oxygen one way, carbon dioxide the next. You know that, right? Once you pump on that ventilator, boom, just blowing holes. Granny was dead. That's why Mario Cuomo, I despise his politics as a dem. I mean, I'm not no supporter of Cuomo, but Cuomo said something. If you if you play it back, he said something when all the people were dying in New York. One day he what he used to give these big famous daily um news things. He became famous. He became like a star. And one of them he said. I, I just can't understand why 90% of the people who want the ventilator dying. They say we needed ventilators, I'm giving them the ventilators, but everybody dying. He said that the news didn't follow up, but he actually was right. As much as I despise Cuomo's politics, not as a human being, but his politics, Cuomo was right. He was onto something, but he didn't know, he didn't understand. Yes, the ventilator was killing them. We killed. Our elderly with the ventilators too. Every single thing we did. So now, when my buddy asked me, so how could you explain that surge in deaths around May and June? Well, I just explained it to you. It is how we manage our elderly and our vulnerable people. In May and June of 2020, we caused the deaths. The deaths weren't principally from virus. The deaths was from the medical management of our people in the hospitals. We kill them. That's when you look at the curve. That's what you're looking at. And then if you look from there on, you could see every other spike tracks very tightly with the rollout of the vaccine. From around February of 2021, boom, a blip again. And when you did the second shot, when I mean, you did the first booster, in every country that has taken these vaccines. So, what am I saying? I am trying to say at the end of it, we did not have a pandemic. We had some kind of emergency. We had a new influenza-like illness that was circulating because it was released because of these crazy, insane people and their research. You need to figure out who. NIH, Echo Health, Alliance, Chapel Hill, Barrett, Dazek. Bat Lady, Fauci, Bula Bansal, Francis Collins, the whole works. We need to investigate them. Something they were doing, they were investigating how to gin up and soup up these bats and this coronavirus and make it more infectious. I get that. I've read everything. But it got loose. I am saying it was always loose. What they did was they used it to damage President Trump and in so doing, our management, because remember, it is very important that you remember, you might say, well, you said it was a mild thing, Paul. Yeah, it was mild. But from the moment we locked the society down in March of 2020, any kind of pressure, remember, we underestimated the evolutionary capacity of this virus to respond and evolve and adapt and adapt to the pressure we were placing on it. Anything you do, 
to, to a, a, a mutating virus, a mutable virus, respiratory virus, it will respond because it is trying to infect you to use your cellular metabolic machinery. And I know you know all of this, Tommy, so that it can replicate itself. Once you put pressure, school closures, pressure, lockdowns, pressure, business closures, any non-pharmaceutical intervention that you use societally places the pathogen under pressure and it will evolve and it will adapt to become more infectious and at times then even more, a little more lethal. I'm trying to say that we even at the beginning, it was so mild, but by the pressure of the lockdowns, natural selection, selective pressure, we caused it to change even into a little more lethality. So part of the lethality was due to that pressure. And today, today, we have infectious variant after infectious variant. Why? Because we are using a vaccine, a gene injection that does not neutralize the virus and places vaccinal immune pressure now on the virus. This is not lockdown pressure. This is vaccine pressure. Again, the virus is mutating. It is selecting the most infectious variant and it's doing viral immune escape and it's going to become more infectious with each subvariant. People like Dr. Goodfriend and Bosch, who I do a lot of work with, I've, I've learned so much from him. I school under him, even. I, I think he's like the guru. He's explained that his fear is one of those subvariants could actually be infectious and also more lethal. In other words, I am making the statement to your audience today of this. If you want this pandemic to go on for 100 more years, you just keep vaccinating exactly how we're doing it now, using these mRNA gene injections. You keep doing this, this will never end. And, and the key with all of this is that they used it to hurt President Trump. And I know that because I was there. And what I'm saying is when we looked at the internal polls in uh, like January, February and stuff, President Trump was unstoppable. There was nobody in the Democrat Party, even when we modeled Biden. When you look at the Republicans, no one. No one could have... I myself in January, February 2020, looking all at his accomplishments, and saying, shit, this guy would probably, this guy might end up on Mount Rushmore if his, if his second term is, um, he gets to finish what he started. And remember, President Trump, to really understand what he did, you need to handicap the first two years was, was gone. Paul Ryan, his speaker, worked against him. President Trump had no major problem. He couldn't even get a war because Paul Ryan and they blocked him. Yeah, the Republican speaker, Paul Ryan. The fourth year was pandemic. It was chaos. It was like a mad show up in there. President Trump must be judged on his third year of his term, one year. But in one year, he did more with all of his regulatory relaxations, with everything that he did for, for America, than most presidents save Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. President Trump did more in one year for black Americans, for minorities, than Obama did in eight. This is the most crazy thing to think about, but he did. So he was unstoppable. People, people wanted him. Again, 
something went wrong from post those lockdowns. And you need to understand, yes, I think I think they messed around with the votes. I think they used the mail-in ballots and stuff. I think the Republicans got flat got caught flat-footed in the sense that the Democrats figured out how to use the mail-in ballots, meaning how to drive it, get massive numbers, whether it's legal or illegal, how they fill them out. That's not the point. The ground game was key. Democrats have a vicious mail-in ballot ground game. If Republicans want to compete, stop sitting down on the sideline whining about mail-in ballots. If this is the way of the future, get the hell out there and figure out how to hit the streets like the Democrats and go and harvest the votes. If harvesting votes is the way, harvest votes. You don't stand up and bitch while they're winning. You do something about it, right? That's the way we deal with this. I believe, though, that the lockdowns hurt President Trump. It hurt him. It hurt him with his, his supporters because many of his supporters lost people. They lost people from the children. Listen, we have children in America that hung themselves. They committed suicide during the lockdowns, the school closures. President Trump was fighting CDC and NIH. I was there. Like, like it was war up in there with Trump, Scott Atlas. I was on the inside banging away at CDC and NIH. Fauci and me were enemies. He hated me. Burks hated me. But the system was aligned against him. You had media. You had rhinos. You had academia, Hollywood. You had the Democrats sitting there. All of them, 24-7 on. Who do you know? His first year in 2015 announcing he's going to run, campaigning. For four years of his presidency. Then for the last two years, Biden. Seven years, this guy and his family and his name have been harangued, harassed. They impeach him twice for nothing. Who do you know could survive that? I give him a lot of props. I do. It was hell. They just raided his home. People going up in his wife's underwear, drawing all kinds of shit. Oh, you could do that. How? How? It makes no sense, this derangement over Trump. All I am saying is, whatever they did with this virus, it is how we managed our elderly. This virus was not a pandemic-type virus. This is not Nipah or Marburg, hemorrhagic fever virus. This is not that. Right? This is not. And because, look, today, the infection fatality rate by John Iamides from Stanford, he modeled it the most updated last month. What did he find? Stable from 2020. Same thing he found then. The infection fatality rate 0.05% for persons 70 to 75 and below. For flu is 0.1. That means the infection fatality rate, when you think about it, is half lethal than the flu. So we were dealing always with a virus, an influenza-like illness, with a, with a mortality rate, infection fatality rate of at seasonal influenza or below. That was it. We could have managed this with early treatment, with, with vitamin D, vitamin C. Just I said, Dr. Scott Atlas said, key, all we needed, Tommy, from day one, all we needed was you isolate only, always, only sick, 
symptomatic unwell people. If Susie comes up to you, her nose running, her face like you want to explode, she in all kinds of pain, she could barely walk, and she tells you she's not feeling well, and this thing circulating, that's the person you tell, look, you gotta go home, you gotta lock you down. That's the person, sick, visible, you have clinical suspicion and it's verified in front of you. Don't even need to do a diagnostic test. But uh, uh, beyond that, just sick people, beyond that, you properly protect the vulnerable people. So you, you take precautions with granny and everyone, but you let the rest of society live free. Unfettered lives to do, you know, take reasonable precautions. So you, 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 you isolate, you lock down sick people. That is, that is not in question because you'd be a fool to say what well, these people actually have a contagious thing that is problematic, but you let them roam in society. No, but you rest, you properly protect granny. You take reasonable precautions, you know, and you let the rest of society live free. We should have never locked down this society, period, period, none. No school closures, nothing. In other words, I'll conclude my open, and I know I spent so much time saying this, had we done nothing, had we done nothing but to look at and isolate the unwell sick people, we'd have lost far fewer people these last three years than we did because we would have not killed them in the hospital with midazolam and remdesivir and ventilation. We will not have killed them with the isolation that we put them through the elderly people, with the trauma. We will not have killed them with that. We have not killed them with this vaccine, this mRNA technology gene injection vaccine that's killing people. Killing people. We know it's killing people because the virus right now don't kill anyone really. Yet young people die when they take the vaccine. So the vaccine is doing something. It's subverting the immune system and killing people. I am saying, had we brought no vaccine, had we done nothing, nothing, just isolate people when they were sick. For this pathogen, I'm not talking about if you brought me something with 20% mortality, another pathogen. I'm talking about this one. And the fear now is people are so fed up. They understand the lies from CDC and NIH. They understand the corruption we've been through for three years that I fear as an epidemiologist, infectious diseases specialist, that if we really face a Nipah virus, a Rift Valley fever virus, with serious mortality, 50, 60, Ebola, we'd be in trouble because people wouldn't want to do nothing. People wouldn't listen to anyone anymore because nobody respects their medical doctor anymore. Doctor credibility is in the tank because they denied early treatment they tried to tell us that natural immunity was inferior to vaccine immunity. Impossible. Impossible. We had evidence 2,500 years ago in the Athenian plague. We knew natural immunity existed because we have the, the script 2,500 years been translated. And there's a line in there where it is clear they were talking about natural immunity. It was clear. We knew that. They lied to us about early treatment doctors, our medical doctors should hang their heads in shame for what they did. You send sick people, elderly people home and tell them, go home and if you get worse, come back, you can't breathe, come back. We've never done that as medical doctors. You use empiric treatment. 
You use all kinds of treatment. You send people home with a script. Go on this, try that. We killed our people with what we did here. It was madness. And we need to investigate these people. I don't know if these house hearings would be it because they have started. They look like they're, they're a bunch of clowns, to be honest with you. But we can't stop. We need people like you, Tommy, running your show, keeping all the information coming at people and keeping them informed. You need people like me, McCullough, on the stump daily, hammering away, informing people. Because we need investigations. We need people held to account. We need justice. We need serious justice for the wrongs. Because too many people were killed needlessly. Our parents, our grandparents, our loved ones. We couldn't even bury our dead even. They wouldn't even let us do that. So for me, for me, I'm a God-fearing man. And, and I like gracious mercy and stuff. I'll be honest with you. I like things like that. I appreciate, you know, you have to forgive. But I will forgive, but I want justice too. How how that gonna look? I don't know. So anyway, Tommy, that was my opening, and you must be frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> no man, that was that was that was a that was a. We started at six oh six. That was a fifty minute open. I think that was brilliant. Uh, I don't. What well, do you find it was? I thought it was great. I'm gonna change the. I'm gonna change the title of the show. Uh, I'm gonna say the most thorough COVID chronology. I was thinking of that while you're well, talking. I mean... Yeah, but my view, right? My view, but I, I, I packed in a lot of things that look. We have to make this make sense. What has happened, Tom? What do you think? Well, we well the thing is, is like we do have this now, right? We can look back now. In 2020, we couldn't look at it the same way during World War yes. II. You can't see World War II, right? We look back now and we can see how neatly World War One became World War II. But at the time, World War One was called the Great War. No one knew there was another one coming, right? No one yeah. knew it was the Cold War until it was the Cold War, right? So you can only see it in hindsight. So it being March 2023, we can start to look at it a little more solidly. And yes. to anyone that thinks that that is too wild of an idea to release a bioweapon to remove a president, it's a president that didn't start any wars and was a direct threat to the entrenched power structure. The last guy to do that got his head blown off in Dallas. All right. Yeah. If you don't think they're willing to do this, you don't have a functioning brain cell. These people are demons. These people are yeah. demons from fucking hell. Yes. God bless. They only released COVID. They'll release Ebola if they. They'll go to. They'll bring us to a third. Uh, a third world war if that's what they need to solidify their power. Make no doubt about yes. it. So I think I think you're dead on. I think you're preaching to the choir. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And I think they're taking us to World War Three now. Yeah. If we don't wake up. Yeah. Well, it's... But, you know, spoiler alert is we all die anyway. And I don't mean that in a, in a pessimistic way. I mean yeah. it in a... It's a liberating thing. We all die. Like, do your best now. Like, die with honor. If you see evil, point it out. Fight it. Do it now. Don't, don't, don't let Fauci win. That guy is, yeah. that guy is such, is such a pussy. I mean, he looks yeah. like a nerd that we need to like beat up in a bathroom stall. Excuse my language, but. but you, I love it. <laughs> but th that, that's what <laughs> this is. And the thing is, is it's so easy to fight. You know, fifth generation warfare is different in that it's not bullets and bombs. It's, it's media, it's electrons. Well, guess what? That means you can also fight back. 
without bullets and bombs, but with memes, with videos, with texts. It's the easiest thing to fight back against. You can do it from your phone sitting on the toilet. You don't have to grab a gun and go storm a beach. So simply by circulating truth, by questioning things, and it's a trial and error process. You're going to question things, and then a year later you're going to go, oh, I'm such an idiot, I got it wrong. That's fine. That's the learning process. But you have to follow what your basic gut instinct is saying, not what the government's saying, but go back to 2003, and now look at how insane it is that they let us invade Iraq for WMDs when Dick Cheney, the sitting vice president, was the former CEO of who? Halliburton, right? It's only been 20 years since then. How absurd do you think it's going to look in 2043? You mean they really just didn't assume Pfizer was lying and making money? That's what it is, guys. And it's, it's a shitty realization to come to. But it's here. And there's nothing yeah. to do but deal with it. And I really think it can yeah. be dealt with. It's, yeah. the, I love the quote that their propaganda wouldn't be necessary if the situation was hopeless. They wouldn't need to censor us if their situation was hopeless. If they had overpowering numbers, they'd just demolish us. But they haven't. It's because it's a few scared excuses for men trying to take over the world. That's it. It's a house of cards. You just got to push back a little bit. Yes. And that's where we needed you. And you've, you've held firm. You're like the wall. You're part of the wall and the resistance. We love it because you kept out there and you didn't stop. Many, as I said, many didn't keep on. But you found a way to make it work. And we're very, very inspired by this, Tommy. And uh, I'm glad that you, got, you, you allowed me back on to talk to your audience. Absolutely. And uh, the audience has shown us too, the general population, your audience, etc., how they're massive critical thinkers and how smart they are. Brilliant. They they understand what's happening and they have been helping us fight. And uh, I, I'm really appreciative to them also. Absolutely. And they've shown by the videos they watch, the most viewed videos are people talking about this. Of all my episodes, hands down, the most viewed videos are this. Those numbers don't lie. That's what people want to hear. Like, we have the majority. We just, yes. No one, we don't feel it in our bones yet but we have the overwhelming majority of people. Yes. Well, um, well, I know you said we'll go for an hour, and it's about an hour, and it's your fourth show. So, I mean, I know we, I, I said a lot. People have to digest yeah. a lot of what no, it was. No, it was brilliant. That's part of the podcast is just to get it out there and get it captured, and then people can go back and look at it whenever they want. It was, uh, honestly, that made it easy for me because I had done three episodes prior to this. That was so perfect that you talked for the whole thing because I, I just got to sit back because, you know, I don't, think, <laughs> I don't think I had more than five minutes of talking in me anyway. So you, you just did my job for me, man. I'll have to send you some money. So uh, <laughs> Dr. Alexander, thank you, sir. Um, in the description is your Substack. Guys, go check it out. Yeah, my, my, my Substack is, um, you could find me if you want. Um, my Substack is free. Um, Alexander. COVID news. That's Alexander COVID news. Um, I wrote that book, President Trump. Um, it's called Presidential Takedown, where I try to explain from my view inside how Fauci and Burks and CDC conspired to take down President Trump. So Presidential Takedown is on Amazon and um, Barnes and Noble. Take a look at it if you if you want. And uh, I I just I just want to say thanks a lot to your viewers for. Uh, for um, allowing me to, to speak and listening. Thank you. Yes, sir. Dr. Alexander, love you, brother.
Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care, everybody. God bless. Do the right thing. Recording God bless stopped. America. Peace.